0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, we're taking a step away from the news to take a look at some broader global stories. Odds are that you can't name too many ancient Chinese monasteries, but you probably know the name Shaolin, The fact that it's become an international brand makes some uncomfortable. For the man who made it so, it was necessary. And an annual tradition at The Economist is that the staff submit their picks for the most outstanding books of the year. Our culture editor runs through the best of the best. But first... So slow down a bit here. Slow down, wait here. You see that water
1: there? Reverse just a bit. The lead comes from here.
0: The central Zambian town of Kabwe has been called the most toxic place on the planet. It was developed around a lead mine built by a British colonial firm in the early 1900s. Although the mine shut its doors in 1994, its toxic dust continues to plague the town. Some residents try to protect themselves, like Joy Mbuse, who tells her young brothers not to play outside.
2: Oh yeah, I don't let my young brothers play around because there's a lot of dust outside, and before I, sleep outside, I have, like in of water.
0: Now, a class action lawsuit against Anglo-American South Africa, which was affiliated with the mine for 50 years, is seeking compensation for more than a hundred thousand women and children.
1: We intend to defend our position as we don't believe that Anglo-American is responsible for the current situation. I obviously understand that that doesn't help the people of Cubway, and I realize that. And of course, we have every sympathy for their plight.
0: Whatever the outcome of the case, there will still be a need to deal with the lead that permeates the town's soil and its inhabitants' bodies.
3: The most atrocious cliche for any Africa correspondent is to refer to a place as hot and dusty. But in this case, the fact that Kabwe is hot and dusty really matters because it's the dust of the former lead mine that has blown all over town.
0: John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa
3: correspondent. He recently visited Kabwe. Much of Kabwe is a kind of normal, mid-sized African city. It has a bustling market and it's a hive of activity. But there are about half a dozen townships that lie close to the former smelter. And they, in particular, are, are kind of coated in this fine dust which contains the lead metal. And when I was there uh, a few weeks ago, I went to see a man called Azel Tembo. Hello, good morning, how are you? I'm all right, good morning, how are you? Who was a miner for almost two decades, and we sat in his front yard. What kind of tree is this?
0: It's mango.
3: Oh, Underneath a mango tree while chickens were pecking around his feet, and I heard his story. After
2: the mine has been closed. Since no medication was there, then we became affected the more plus.
3: Mr. Tembo worked at the mine after it was nationalized in 1970 until it closed in 1994. And he says he was never really told about the dangers of lead while he was there, but that today it continues to give him health problems. He says he's got bad eyesight, sore head, droopy limbs, he can't be sure, but he suspects that all of those ailments have something to do with the fact he worked at the lead mine.
2: The whole issue has become known to everybody in this township after the mine has been closed.
0: And presumably, if this dust is, is all around, then Mr. Tumbo's story isn't, uh, isn't unique.
3: That's right. Anyone you speak to in Cabway has some knowledge of the risks of lead and more recently that awareness has grown, especially when it comes to the dangers faced by children. Local NGOs are hosting radio shows and running courses in schools to educate people.
2: I would like someone,
0: please tell me about lead. What is lead? Uh, Lead is a substance that affects the human body. Lead
1: is a very poisonous substance that you find in the soil
3: that can affect- Lead, of course, a potentially toxic metal, can be poisonous at really low levels in the bloodstream. And because children's bodies are smaller, they're developing, and because kids are more likely to inhale and ingest the toxic dust, they're at greater risk. And the effects can be profound... We're talking about behavioral problems, learning disabilities, and ultimately lower IQ if you have prolonged exposure to the metal.
0: And, and what efforts have been made down the years to, to protect the residents from, from the, the, the mines lead?
3: There have been a few efforts, a couple funded by the World Bank, including one that's ongoing. But environmental scientists and experts in this field are convinced that none of them have been or will be sufficient to fully decontaminate the town. I saw this when I went to the house of a man called Cornelius Katiti.
2: They want to clean. They used to close this one at that point, point. and then even there they put some blocks, uh, solid blocks, so that water diverts to this one.
3: He has a canal right on the back of his garden, which was dredged in the 2000s by a World Bank-funded project, but even today, as plant matter has grown into it. Every rainy season, water builds up and that comes over the lip of the canal into his garden, adding to the toxic contents of his yard. And that just symbolized for me how, while there's been these piecemeal efforts, day in, day out, the people in Kabwe are still faced with the poisonous environs.
0: And about the court case that is tackling this problem, why why is it happening now after all these years of of half-hearted efforts?
3: Lawyers have been looking at the case for the better part of two decades— but they feel they've finally gotten the necessary archival research done to bring the case against Anglo. And they also feel that legal changes in South Africa to do with the ease of making a class action suit mean that now is the time to try and seek redress for their clients.
0: And what do you think will happen?
3: The only thing I know for sure is that the case is going to take many years to play out. The lawyers for the applicants need to first prove that the case can be heard in South Africa. That's before it even gets to trial. And if it were to get to trial, there's no doubt that Anglo will vigorously contest the charges. So I don't think there'll be a resolution anytime soon.
0: And in the meantime, the residents of Kabwe will will continue to, to inhale, to live around all of this toxic dirt.
3: Sadly, that's the case. In the absence of any clear plan to remediate the town people living in Caboet are trying their best to protect themselves, but ultimately many residents are simply too poor to leave and others do not want to go because whatever its perils, Caboet is their home, like Cornelius Kititi But do you hope that your children, your grandchildren will get to be able to play in safety at some point? Yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: John, thank you very much for your time.
3: The
0: Shaolin Monastery in central China was founded 1,500 years ago. It's famous for its ancient buildings and its monks skilled in kung fu. The Shaolin name has also become an international brand, something that might seem counter to the Buddhist faith. But the man in charge disagrees— arguing that commercialization was a means to keep the monastery alive against long odds.
1: Shi is the abbot of Shaolin Monastery. He's a monk with an MBA. For years, headlines have referred to him as the CEO monk because on his watch, Shaolin has opened up branches internationally. It's licensed its name to movies. There was even a period where it made plans to list on the stock market.
0: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor.
1: Mr. Schur is seen as a controversial figure, somebody who's crassly commercialized Shaolin Monastery, but I think if you look at the way in which he's tried to revive the monastery and has dealt with all kinds of difficult pressures, there's a case for his defense to be made.
0: Well, how is it that he came to revive the monastery in the first place?
1: So Mr. Shur first went to Shaolin in 1981. He was 16 years old. He wanted to go to the monastery to see it. But it was not long after the Cultural Revolution when Mao had suppressed Buddhism, when Red Guards had destroyed temples. I sat down for several long interviews with Mr. Shur, and he talked about the shambles that Shaolin was in when he first went there. There was just about 20 monks that were living inside of it. They were getting by on little more than two steamed buns a day. It was almost abject poverty.
2: Mm.
1: Nevertheless, he established himself basically as the second in command to the abbot at that time. And they would go to the local government and also to the government in Beijing to petition for the right to sell tickets. Because an amazing thing happened in 1982, shortly after he arrived there. A movie came out, Shaolin Temple, and it was about one of the foundational stories of Shaolin itself. And that put Shaolin Temple on the map in a big way.
0: In the sense that it became a a tourist destination.
1: That's right. So it went from having roughly 50,000 visitors a year to having more than 2 million in 1984. And Mr. Schur, he always had a sense of what Shaolin had to do to reach out to secular society. He views it as a mission of his to broaden Buddhism's appeal, to make Shaolin better recognized as well. And so the tourism boom that had begun after the movie continued. People came in from the area around Shaolin, they began to open up guest houses, tourist shops, even karaoke parlors just outside of its walls. You know, In the 1990s, it turned into a small city. There was about 20,000 people who were living just outside of the monastery. And according to people who were there at the time, they said it had a real carnival-like atmosphere. And there were also dozens of Kung Fu Schools that opened up, they all claimed to be the true heirs of the Shaolin tradition. When I spoke to Mr. Shur, he said that it seemed that things were just almost spiraling out of control in the 1990s. That everybody and anybody was trying to use the Shaolin name for their benefit, and there were all kinds of products on the market that had nothing to do with Buddhism. There was even Shaolin ham and Shaolin beer. <laughs>
0: So, what did Mr. Shu do about this getting, as you say, out of hand?
1: He realized that the popularity was a double edged sword. He wanted to promote Buddhism in Shaolin, but it clearly was going counter to what he wanted Shaolin to stand for. So, he began to consult with advisors in the provincial government in Henan about what the monastery could do to protect itself. Ultimately, the one thing it could do was establish itself as a company and then begin to fight for its trademark. So today, if you were to look at corporate filings in China, you'd see that Shaolin now has nearly 700 trademarks. The way that Mr. Shu put it to me is that we did not seek commercialization. It was thrust upon us.
0: But where does all of this sit with the government, which, it must be said, isn't all that tolerant of, of all religion?
1: That's right in general. The big exception is the kind of Buddhism that Shaolin Monastery is doing. It really is religion with Chinese characteristics and the Communist Party likes its appeal to traditional Chinese values. The real conflict lies in the fact that Shaolin became incredibly popular and so for the local government in Dengfeng, which is a poor county where Shaolin is based, when tourists began to stream into the monastery they wanted to get their hands on the ticket revenues. So going back to the 1980s, there was off and on battles between the monastery and the local authorities about who would actually be able to control the ticket sales. They eventually came to a solution. 70% of the revenues go to the local government, 30% to the monastery. But then things began to get a lot more complicated. How do you mean? Well, in 2009 the local government decided that it wanted to monetize Shaolin to an even greater extent. So it invited in a big state-owned enterprise focused on tourism, CNTS, China National Travel Services. The deal was that CNTS would take a 51% stake in the local government's share of the Shaolin Monastery, and in return, it would build up the tourism infrastructure of Dengfeng County. Mr. Shur didn't attend the launch ceremony, And then rumors began to circulate that the Shaolin Monastery wanted to list on the stock market, potentially raising as much as 1 billion RMB, $150 million. In fact, speaking to Mr. Schur, it's clear that he never liked the idea. He didn't want Shaolin to be a for-profit enterprise. So quietly, behind the scenes, he began to ask questions of higher-ranking government officials about whether a monastery like Shaolin could even list on the stock market. And lo and behold, the prime minister at the time, Wen Jiabao, eventually ruled that Shaolin could not list. Local authorities were furious. They had lost what they hoped was going to be a cash cow. Then three months later, this is 2015, some salacious accusations surfaced online, accusing him of having violated his vows of celibacy, having fathered two children, having even raped a woman, and having embezzled vast amounts of money from the temple. The local government opened up an investigation. In 2017, he was actually fully exonerated. So he is still at Shaolin. He is still the abbot of the monastery.
0: In a broad view of this, then, where do you fall down? The degree to which the Shaolin traditions have been debased by all of this and the degree to which Mr. Schur has exploited them. How do you feel about that?
1: I think when people just reduce him to the CEO monk, they sort of fail to appreciate the complexities. You know, when I was there, I actually had a chance to attend some of the Chan meditation rituals. And you can see that at the heart of the monastery, there really is this attempt to do much more than just Kung Fu, much more than just showbiz, to really try to make Chan Buddhism, the Shaolin sect, alive and functioning again, and to try to attract New adherents, and nowadays there still are lots of people who want to come into the monastery. But those who want to enter it, those who want the monastic life, are much purer in their faith, are seeking the lessons and the teachings of Buddhism. And this is something that the abbot says he's very, very happy to see.
0: Simon, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jason.
0: For more perspectives like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. Maybe someone you know would love a subscription for Christmas. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash offer. The link is in the show notes. This year, lots of people found themselves with a lot of spare reading time. Thankfully, 2020 has provided good books aplenty, and we have a few favorites.
2: Every year at The Economist, we print a list of around 40 or so of our favorite books across a whole range of categories.
0: Andrew Miller is our culture editor.
2: We choose them by asking the whole editorial team to make suggestions, and also looking back at the reviews we've published in the course of the year, and combine them in an alchemical process to produce
0: our list. And so what came out on top this year? What are this year's Economist's favorite books?
2: Well, as always, there were many more suggestions than there were slots available in our list. The politics and current affairs category is always heavily oversubscribed, but one book that we included and highlighted was suggested by our Europe correspondent, Matt Steinglass, which deals with one of the most pressing themes of our time.
1: Tom Burgess's book Kleptopia is a suspenseful drama about international money laundering centered around a Kazakh oligarch There are also British anti-money laundering compliance officers who have figured out what's going on at European banks, but no one will listen to them. There are Romeo and Juliet subplots between members of different clans. There are Zimbabwean thugs and Russian-American real estate dealers. And really, it's
0: probably the best book I've read about the whole global network of dirty money that's taking over politics as we know it. And I imagine that you weren't short on suggestions for business and economics books either.
2: Yes, we had lots of suggestions, but one that we included was suggested by our media editor, Tom Wainwright. No Filter is a great little book.
0: It tells the story of Instagram, how it was founded, how it grew, and how it was eventually bought by Facebook, after which its founders got so fed up that they decided to leave. Uh, The author is very close, clearly, to the founders of Instagram, and through them, she gets all kinds of nice details. And now with the antitrust case against Facebook, it's more topical than ever. And clearly, this year has been dominated by the pandemic. What did you come across particularly interesting about COVID-19?
2: Well, there were several instant books about the pandemic. And our senior editor, Kenneth Kukie, suggested one called Apollo's Arrow by the distinguished scientist Nicholas Christakis.
1: What makes this book special is it comes at COVID with two academic lenses in mind, sociology and medicine, written by someone who's an expert in both. It notes that not only do viruses mutate within human beings, but human behavior mutates around the pandemic as well. What I love best is the prediction that Christakis makes, which is he says that right now we're actually not at the beginning of the end. We're only at the end of the beginning. And he notes that in history, after the period of the pandemic, society doesn't bounce back immediately, but eventually it does, and it overcorrects. So after the pandemic of 1918, Spanish flu, there was the Roaring Twenties. And so, too, he expects a huge release of emotion and of licentiousness and joie de vivre in 2024.
2: But Jason, often during this year, I, like many readers, have also turned to fiction to illuminate the world we're living in and sometimes take me to other worlds entirely. My colleague Rachel Lloyd, who edits our culture blog, Prospero, recommended a book called Burnt Sugar. By
3: Avni Doshi. It tells the story of Antara, a young woman who's looking after her mother with dementia. And she looks back over her childhood, which was traumatic and troubled, and their relationship was very strained. These are memories that her mother no longer has. It's a slim but compelling debut novel, and I highly recommend it.
0: And Andrew, if you could choose just one book that really stood out for you this year, what would it be?
2: Well, one revelation in reading for me this year was a delightful, picaresque novel called The Slaughterman's Daughter by the Israeli author Yaniv Ixkovitz. It's a story set in the late 19th century in Tsarist Russia, and it tells of a Jewish mother in the Pale of Settlement who sets out to retrieve her wayward brother-in-law from Minsk with unexpected and hilarious consequences. And it's a book full of technicolour characters, pathos and humour, all of which are wonderfully captured in a nimble translation from the Hebrew.
0: Well, that is plenty of ideas for some holiday time reading, since there's not much else I can do this year. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow.